Blog Talk Radio. Thank you for joining us on Three Women, Three Ways. We are the show that tackles three tough topics sometimes, and we are actually uh, winding up a series of shows on the family court system in the United States. And it's been um, a, a rousing and informative month. And for those of you who haven't caught our previous shows, I suggest you go back, uh, scroll down on the webpage through the archive, and pick those stories. They started March 5th with uh, Barry Goldstein, and um, they continued through today. And we've talked about the issue of what is the crisis in the family courts, um, what does the, the men's rights movement have to do with it, what are all the ancillary people involved in court, and what is their role, and how do they get paid, and all that kind of stuff. And uh, we're wrapping it up today with two uh, exemplary people who have worked in this field for quite some time. And we're going to be talking about, so what do we do about this crisis? I'm talking with Eileen King, founding director of Child Justice Incorporated. She's worked uh, tirelessly. We were talking uh, before we went on air about exactly how many years did she do this and how many years did she do that. doesn't matter because she's been involved tirelessly since the 1990s, getting, um, uh, working with in the field of child abuse, getting help for children uh, and domestic violence victims. Uh, she's just been there, and her organization offers some emotional support for protective parents she jo- they join in legal appeals, they work with the media, and she testifies a lot before state legislatures on the issues of re-victimization by the courts. Eileen, welcome. Thank you so much. It's an honor to be here today. Oh, well, thank you so much for joining us. I can't wait to get this conversation started. But first, we have to introduce another outstanding person in this field, and that is Garland Waller. Garland, welcome. Join You are joining us. Uh, you are a professor, a film producer, and an outstanding spokesman on uh, domestic violence. And uh, you are most noted for your documentaries about court injustices, uh, including Small Justice, Little Justice in America's Family Court, and the uh, one that is really seeing some coverage right now. Now is no way out but one, and that, of course, is a story about an American domestic violence victim who was given asylum by the Netherlands because of the violence she experienced. So welcome very much, Garland. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Both of you women have exemplary careers and, and experiences in the family court system and in the domestic violence mm-hmm. field. Um, Garland, let's start with you. What... What led you to participate in in this field? Why you know why did you use your expertise in the areas uh, of talking about the, the the family court system and domestic violence in the United States? Well, I've I was a producer, a television producer for many years uh, here in Boston, and around 1996 or seven. Of childhood friend, so a woman who's been my friend since childhood, a woman named Diane Hoffheimer, who was a paralegal uh, in a law firm that she ran with her husband, Charlie Hoffheimer, in Virginia Beach, Virginia. And she called me up and said, I know you're a documentary producer. I know you know television. I just want to tell you that we are seeing a pattern in our cases that are that we're seeing that that uh where a woman uh files for divorce shortly after she does that uh and has custody of her child the child reports uh physical or sexual abuse in these cases that I did for small justice little justice in America's family courts they were all sexual abuse cases and As soon as the women went to court and reported the sexual abuse, they lost custody of their kids to the pedophile. And Diane said, can't you do something? And that started me on a journey that led me very early on to the brilliant and wonderful Eileen King, to whom (laughs) you are also speaking, but Eileen has been a real guide and 
source of extraordinary information and wisdom for me because I am not an expert in the film field of domestic violence or child abuse or child sexual abuse. I'm a TV producer and a professor in the College of Communication at Boston University where I teach producing. So I've come to this sort of in a roundabout way, and I've certainly learned about the topic, but it's because I've been guided by people like Eileen and like Diane Hoffheimer and like Charlie Hoffheimer. Wow. Well, um, I know, actually, I was hoping that somebody would call in today, and they may. We actually have some callers lined up already um, talking to talk about your film and the push to get it on uh, YouTube. Um, so uh, hopefully we're going to be talking more about that. Eileen, what brought you to this field? Well, I was living in Germany for about eight years. Um, I About 21 years of my life I spent in what are called life-sharing communities with people with various types of disabilities, and eight of those years were in Germany. And when I lived there, one of the questions that I lived with every day was, how could the Holocaust have happened there? How could people have not seen what was going on? And why was it so hard to have the courage to say something and do something? And I was very interested in the resistance movement, in particular the White Rose, of these young people who leafleted and raised awareness um, in Germany and paid for it with their lives. And I thought to myself, what astonishing, incredible courage for them to have spoken out in that time. And I also asked myself when I was still living there, oh, if anything ever came to my attention, you know, would I have the courage and, and the, you know, the, the, the stamina to really raise my voice or would I just turn away? And when I was coming back to the United States, my sister Sherry Cork, who had started a nonprofit called One Voice, said, could you help me? And there I went into the big um, (laughs) home office, which was just piles and piles of paper about child sexual abuse. And we had learned fairly recently that our mother had been abused as a child. And so this began to take on a very uh, strong personal um, interest for us. And so Sherry said, well, you know, here's all the stuff we have, you know, read and, and get up to speed. So I read and read, and I really knew nothing. I knew nobody and nothing. And uh, I read, I called up people, I made connections that are still good, you know, all over the United States. And one of the first things that happened was um, as I was working for the American Coalition Against Abuse Awareness, which did uh, was a 501c4 lobbying group, um, began to get calls from mothers from all over the United States who were saying, I reported abuse. They took my child. I reported abuse. They took my child. There was evidence. They took my child. And so for several years, I kept hearing these stories and thinking, what what can we do about this? What can we do? And I joined um, in 2000 Justice for Children, who worked there for 12 years and began to see actually in the courts how this is happening because we did court watch. We found attorneys to represent protective parents, primarily mothers, pro bono. We um, found attorneys to represent parents in appeals. We submitted uh, amicus curiae briefs uh, in appeals. And so, and, and then of course I talked to hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of, of mostly mothers and heard and saw with my own eyes in the transcripts, the psychological evaluations, the various reports. I saw, you know, got a better picture of like how this was actually happening and how complex it was. And it was a whole systemic failure, not just a failure of one person, but there was a systemic failure taking place there. And when I began to see this, you know, in the very beginning and take those calls, I thought that this is the thing I can't turn away from. I cannot turn away. And so that's um, what has fired me all these years of, of seeing something that most people in the United States, frankly, do not see this. Right. Uh, and Garland is one of those rare people who immediately recognized it. But for a lot of people, it's still under the radar. It's mysterious. There's a lot of uh, myths and stereotypes. As soon as you say the word child abuse, court custody, people have their ideas. And so um, I think that Garland and our colleagues 
all over the United States and in other countries. I think this is cutting-edge pioneering work, and we're hoping that the day is coming to burst this open. <laughs> well, somebody, I, I, I wish I could remember the, the name of the person who said this because so I could give at, uh, adequate attribution, but there is a, a person out, here, out there who works in the, this field who said that, that with all of these issues, there comes a tipping point. The tipping point comes yeah. when everybody starts talking about it. That's when things start. People start becoming educated. Yes, and it's the Malcolm Gladwell is, in the in the move in the book, The Tipping Point. That's, thank that's you. what it's from. Thank you. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> but uh, it's my hope that that we are approaching that tipping point, um, and hopefully, you know, there'll be other uh, shows that are out there in the mainstream that can be talking about this. But my experience is that most people, whether we're talking about um, um, intimate partner violence, whether we're talking about trafficking, whatever we're talking about, if there's if it's never touched your life, it's very difficult for us um, to understand it. Um, I, I remember well, oh. <clears throat> talking to uh, a, a principal at my son's school, and and there were some people that were going through an extremely uh, abusive uh, divorce. The the husband was extremely abusive and and manipulative, and and it was extremely hard on the woman. And I remember talking to the principal about the situation, and he said. Oh well, my wife and I had a very contentious divorce, and that was two years ago. But now we're the best of friends. Mm. He just missed her experience and the terror of her experience because he had nothing like it. The only thing he had to compare it to was his divorce, where two years later they were the best friends. That's not an abusive relationship. <laughs> and and I think it's that way with all of these things. If we have no basis for understanding it, it is extremely hard for us to get it. And I think that's well, what happens. Well, I would I would jump course. in and say one of the things that it's, it's sort of segues with what you're saying is the movie Spotlight that everybody's been talking about about the Catholic yes. priest abuse. Um And in that movie, they specifically, as reporters, talk about the fact that victims came forward many years before the story was finally told. That story was ignored by the mainstream media for years and years Mm -hmm. and years. And it's a very nice little story. And God bless them, I think it's a terrific story. I think it's a terrific movie. Everybody should see it. But what I find interesting about the story is the parallel to the family courts. Because to me, if you look at how the story ultimately got told about Catholic priest abuse, and you watch how many people protected the priests and the church and the system of the Catholic hierarchy, and you compare it to the lawyers and the judges and the people who are working in the family courts who ignore the children who say they were being abused, who ignore the women who said their children are being abused. If you watch that pattern and the lack of coverage, it makes me come back to the point you were making, Heather, about the tipping point. I wonder if we are close to the tipping point, but you know what? I'm not confident because I think it's dangerous to begin to reveal the truth about the family courts. I think people are very uncomfortable with that. Yeah. I, I agree I also with you. Think, yeah. And, and I think also, you know, our country has many laws in place, which actually, if you look at them, it's, it's why should it be surprising that, you know, violent uh, abusers are getting custody of children or men who sexually abuse their children are getting custody of them when in many of our states, um, if you have raped a woman and the woman conceives and has a child, you have parental rights. You can step forward right. and claim right. your parental rights. So we can't really be surprised um, that this is a, a fact that courts will bend over backwards to give even the person who is a convicted criminal or has done something um, that is a violation of another human being, that it still allows them to claim their parental rights. Wow. Ladies, we have a call, and before we really get into the gist of it, which is what do we do about this, I'm going to take our call. Um, Caller, are you there? 
Hello, caller, are you there? Good morning, Heather. This is Melissa Barnett. Oh, hi, Hello? Melissa. I'm so glad you called. Hi. Melissa, of course, has participated in our, our program before, and Melissa is also an activist in the area of uh, court justice. So, Melissa, thank you for joining us. Do you have a question or a comment? Thank you. I do have a comment, and I'm really grateful for the series that you are producing. And the two uh, guests today are magnificent. We've met many times at the White House as both Garland Waller and Eileen King have stood by and helped us protest with Mothers of Lost Children um, at the White House. And we've gathered many women across the nation to protest this national crisis. And what I wanted to bring attention to is one of the awareness campaigns that Mothers of Lost Children has this year is to try and get No Way Out But One, this um, seminal work of Garland Waller, um, Holly Collins' story of um, asylum in the Netherlands, trying to get that on Netflix. So I'd love to encourage listeners out there if they would like to participate in bringing more awareness to this crisis. We need to, the the idea of the tipping point um, is the aid of media. And so we've, without any money, in this grassroots movement across the nation and worldwide, we've been using social media and different platforms. And so this would be another way for us to educate the public in order to create uh, safer public policies in the area of domestic violence divorces. So I want to well, encourage it's just a good it's a good film. I mean it's just good to watch it. I mean even if you're not particularly uh involved in this in this field. I mean it's it's just uh it's 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 good. <laughs> you are yeah, both no, it's, very it's very kind film. and I appreciate the kind words, really, from both of you and that active support about Netflix. But thank you both. Very kind. Thank you. Okay. Thank so, you. Melissa, what can people do to support getting it? I don't understand. First of oh. all, I thought anybody could put anything on. Um, uh, uh, well, I guess it's, I guess you can't. Um, um, <laughs> but what can people do if they want to, to help get Netflix to, to carry this film? Sure. Uh, we, we put up a story on Mothers of Lost Children. They can go to the site and get all the um, steps that you can take. It's on the Facebook page as well. Um, simply, you could go to Netflix Help, and you can type that into Google. And you can go to, um, at the bottom of the page, it says the live chat. You can go on live chat and leave a one-minute statement about why you want to see No Way Out But One on Netflix. And you can guide them. The information is on Mothers of Lost Children. You could um, guide them to how to get the film. Uh, They can go to Garland Waller Productions. And I understand, um, help me if I'm incorrect, Garland, but you also have a distributor and that distributor can also um, be contacted, and that information is on the website. We're trying to make Absolutely. it simple. It's it's not so that Garland Waller. Promote it. Right. It's the easier way is just go to the site for No Way Out But One. So it's No Way Out But One dot com, and and that would be great because you know the distributor is the distributor's only interested in making money, and they won't do anything extra unless they think, oh, there's an audience out there. So this is wonderful to think that people would do that. So thank you. Thank you. And thank you so much for that call, Melissa. I appreciate that. Um, Oh, thank you. We we also promote people getting the film and having their own personal um, showings in their community to bring awareness. And there is an awareness of victims' rights coming up um, in April, and that's um, a wonderful time to buy the DVD and show it with friends and community and bring awareness to this area. And I thank you so much again for this series. Thank you, Heather. Oh, 
Thank you. Thank you, Melissa, and thank you for joining us, and sit back and, and listen to the rest of the show now, and thanks for that. Cool. Yeah, I, I was hoping that she would call in to talk about that, uh, getting it, the move to get it on Netflix. I think it would be uh, a wonderful move. Okay, back to our original purpose here, which is we've talked about the problem. We've talked about some lack of recognition and our hope that you know recognition in, in, improves for this situation. But what are we doing about it? What can we do about it? Not only on a global standpoint, but if you are that protective mother who is forced, I I mean, I cannot imagine anything worse than forcing your child to go and and handing handing your child off to an abuser. I can't think of anything worse. Um, And yet there are children and mothers who are in that situation every day. So I want to talk about specifically what can we do, but I also want to talk about what can we do globally. What are we, how are we fighting this? Eileen, you want to? Well, you know, I I guess I always start out with you know you can't fix what nobody knows about, and it goes right back to the whole question of awareness again. If people aren't aware that this is a problem, going to you know members of Congress, going to your local representatives um, that that's really really important you know this outreach of telling people you know in office what's happening making connections to um, people who are serving your state or serving the country um, in Congress it's vital to do that writing to the newspapers and and we find the newspapers have a hard time with this because there have been some uh, really wonderful explorations of the family court crisis in the past where people have gotten sued. And so word spreads fast in the community of investigative reporters. So from their point of view, they have to be very, very careful how they approach these. But um, then one should also say that there was a recent uh, Boston Globe article from, yes. from your town, um, Garland, that many of us helped out with. And so here and there we see these steps forward, um, and we're hoping that uh, for the people doing the investigative uh, reporting that they also catch fire and that they begin to see that they're not reporting on isolated incidents, but there is a pattern not just in their own state but across the country. And so um, we have, um, how would you say, foots in the door in many places trying to encourage them to take their investigations further and deeper. You know, I you and I need to talk af- off after afterwards here, Eileen, because I'm, I actually just found out that um, I'm going to be doing a presentation on reporting gendered violence uh, to the Journalism and Women Conference in um, uh, later this year. So um, you and I need to talk about, about how I can best do that. Um, and, Garland, and I'm sure Garland, too. Um, I'm sorry, I don't want to interrupt you. Go ahead, please. No, that's okay. I just wanted, Garland. What what do you see as your um, uh, as as what we can do about this? What about legislation? It seems to well, me that I, the courts are kind I, of like I, over and above just about anything. I think Eileen can speak more to the legislation, and I can speak more to the media. And I have a a couple of strong feelings and thoughts about the media. Um, one is. They are timid. We live in an America where we think the media is strong and brave and it will report all the important (laughs) stories that we need Mm. to know. And that is just not true. The media, for the most part, are owned by, uh, are owned, they're, uh, you know, stockholders care whether the network makes money and it has a trickle-down theory to what stories get covered. So that's one thing. But the other thing, and and Eileen touched on this, is that many reporters get very interested in these stories early on, and they initially think they've hit the mother load. Oh, my God, there's sex, there's violence, there's child abuse. What's not to love in a story about that? I can get my name in the newspaper big time for writing this big expose, and two, two minutes after they've interviewed one of the victims and one of the moms, and you hear these stories all the time about the women who said, I talked to a reporter, he took my story, I let him talk to my kid, and then nothing happens. And it's because the legal department gets involved. 
And the legal department, as Eileen mentioned, says, "Uh uh-uh, we're not doing this. So one of the things that I believe is that all of us have to understand a couple of basic rules about how to talk to the media. And and I have a couple of thoughts on it. If, would I be going on for too long if I shared some of no, those? No, please do. Please do. Oh, okay. Thank you. Um, one thing is what the media want. And what the media want are stories that are easy to understand. They want stories that have clear pros and cons. They want stories that are easy to write. They want stories that have drama and excitement and lots of visuals. They'd love it if they could get a celebrity to weigh in on it. They have to appear balanced and unbiased, and they have to have the blessing of the legal department. Now, what happens in real life with family court stories are this. They aren't easy to understand. They're not clear pros and cons. They're very complicated stories to write, They don't have a happy ending because they never end. These cases go on and on forever. They, unless somebody dies, they're not going to cover the story. And even when somebody dies, if it's not a white, blonde child, it's unlikely (laughs) that there will be coverage. Yeah, and legal, legal remains freaked out. And the thing that the media fall back on is, It's he said, she said. And that is where we've really got to call the media out and say, wait a second. This is a story about justice. This is a story about a public health issue. Because when these children grow up and they have issues related to alcoholism or psychological problems because they've been physically or sexually abused, we all pay for that. So media, you have a job to do. You should do it. So I think that's one I feel I feel like that's one of the ways we have to start approaching the media is saying this is your responsibility. And the other thing we have to do is when women try to tell their stories and it's usually women although it's sometimes men. They tell the story in such crushing detail that the reporter gets overwhelmed. So these stories, the the people who call a reporter, the people who write their stories, they have to get it down to a short conversation or a one-page letter, and then they can send supplemental material later. But if the reporter is overwhelmed, you can't bring the reporter in to do the story. Well, and the interesting thing I think about what you're saying is not only is the reporter overwhelmed, but I think that's kind of a a problem in general with these women who have been victimized. They are so overwhelmed. They're absolutely, uh, you know, uh, frantic. I I invented the word franticized. They're franticized because (laughs) of the the pressure that they're under and the, the, you know, the the stuff that they're going through and the overwhelming nature Mm -hmm. of it and the crushing nature of it. And that being overwhelmed and that, that, you know, again, that, you know, that frantic mm-hmm. appearance that they give off, that works against them not mm-hmm. only before a judge, but also when they're trying to tell the story. Absolutely. 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 Yeah. And it's just, just yeah. what you were saying earlier, too, where, you know, of course they're going crazy when they have to send their child to be abused every other weekend. Yeah. I'm sure Eileen has a, a point to make on this because you've been dealing with this for forever. You know what? Before we do yeah. that, Eileen, I want to get to you. Don't yeah. lose your train of thought. But I want okay. to give out the phone number. We've got a couple of people lined up. Please stay with us, callers. Mm-hmm. 646-378-0430. That's 646-378-0430. Give us a call. And for those of you who are in line waiting, I, I see you there. We're going to get to you as soon as we can. If you don't want to call in, the chat room is open, and I'm monitoring the chat room. So if you want to make a comment, quick comment or whatever there, feel free to do that. Eileen, go. <laughs> Thank you. Um, I guess I want to start out by saying the when I first started looking at these cases, the first phrase that came to my mind was catch-22. 
Mm-hmm. These cases are just nothing but catch-22 cases, you know, uh, no-win cases, you know, damned if you do, damned if you don't, all those those phrases that express the kind of a twisted nature where you want to do something right, but it works against you. And this works, uh, this is carried out in the legal system. It's also carried out in getting any kind of media attention. So you can be very successful in getting media attention, and then the judge can say, well, she's trying to, you know, get the case tried in the court of public opinion. Um, and they don't like that either. And they'll be very punitive and retaliatory against a parent who does get any media coverage. Um, so you can see the, the difficulty. And there are many people who ask me for you know, help getting things into the media. And I say, at this point in your case, it's probably not a good idea. But here I am with one side of my mouth saying we need more publicity and awareness. And in actual cases, I'm saying, wait a second, be careful, you know. This time is maybe not the best time to do it. Um, and there is such a, you know, this, this twisted nature of these cases is in the sense of, you know, people wanting to uphold justice. Uh, there are lots of mental health professionals involved. There are attorneys who are working for the best interest of the child. And you see these people who are supposed to be doing the right thing continually doing the wrong thing. And in small communities, it's very difficult to talk about that because people are sensitive. <laughs> and there, even uh, in my local community here, uh, judges who presided over cases where, you know, in the long run, um, a year or so later, a child was killed or children were killed, um, are very protective of themselves and say, you know, that case came in front of me again, I'd make the same decision. So the media is so needed, and at the same time, there is a resistance to uh, self, I guess I want to call it self-reflection. You know, when, when people look at a situation and they go, oh, my gosh, did we make a mistake? This is really Horrible. Children have died. Uh, something awful has had happened here. Children have been reabused, sexually abused. They've been kidnapped. Um, that process of self-reflection doesn't happen, even when there are um, overwhelmingly strong stories in the media. So, for example, locally here, the Washington Post has done a number of stories on cases, um, and so it's it's perplexing. Like. How do we get over, uh, how do we also, you know, get more attention to this, but attention that also helps make the changes that we need to see in courts amongst professionals who are handling these cases, judges, lawyers, attorneys for children, mental health professionals, um, parenting coordinators. You can list them on and on. <clears throat> so it's, it's a wide it's a wide and deep subject with many moving pieces. So there's a complexity there that um, I think is part of the picture that we have to look at. I think that um, in in my rudimentary study of, of the situations with the courts, and I must preface this by saying, a hundred years ago, I was uh, a person I helped with uh, pre-sentence reports for misdemeanors. So I have a little, tiny, tiny little nugget of understanding. But um, and I am also blessed that I live in King County, Washington, where we have a really progressive and, and uh, really good. Not that there aren't horror stories, but it, it, as a general rule, uh, Seattle area is doing pretty well when it comes to interpersonal violence and uh, intimate partner violence and custody and things like that. General, generally pretty good. Um, so I'm I'm blessed to be here, but I also um, am absolutely taken aback by how locked in court personnel seem to be once they've made a decision. I have never heard a judge, a guardian ad litem, or any of the other ancillary personnel that I have encountered, and I I grant you I don't encounter them every day, so this is a real huge sweeping generalization, but I've never heard them say, you know what, I should have done that differently. 
Is there something uh, in the nature of those professions? Is there something in the nature of the court system that makes them that that requires them to be so iron bound in whatever decision they make? Well, I think one of the problems is that the uh, courtrooms, especially in family court, they're they're sort of a cottage industry. There, uh, where everybody stands to make money except the the victims, I think the judges are uh, you know are kings in their kingdoms, and so nobody wants to fight with them, nobody wants to challenge them, and they have no reason to change. Um, what do they get out of it except that it might damage their reputation? There is a woman named uh, Dr. Joanna Silberg who has done a study on something called turned-around cases, but there sure aren't very many of them. Those are cases where, just what you're talking about, the, the, the either the, Eileen may know more about it than I do, but either the judge changed his or her uh, ruling or new evidence was allowed to be presented or something like that, and, and where the children have were originally given to an abuser and then it was reversed and and the child was protected but i believe those cases are few and far between yeah yeah i mean that's true and you know i've been in a courtroom uh, for one of those turned around cases where the mother and uh, mental health professional described the child's attempted suicide um thank god it was he was saved by his mother who is a nurse and a neighbor who was able to come in and, you know, cut him off from the balustrade that he was hanging from. Um, and so his life was saved. And I remember being in the courtroom and the judge heard this description of this absolutely horrific suicide attempt by this boy. I think he was about 11 or 12. And afterwards he said, well, I, I guess we learned something from that. But he said it in the mildest tone. And I'm, I was sitting there thinking what this mother went through. Taking her son down is incomprehensible. And so, you know, and for the judge, well, I guess, you know, we learned something here. And every so often you do see, you know, we've been, we've been very successful in helping protect children. Those cases are not announced in the media. And they're not announced in the media because the, um, the confidentiality of the child and the family is important and the parents don't, you know, the mother doesn't want it to be broadcasted all over and so you know there's that difficulty there too um and at another point a little bit later on i don't want to hog the conversation but i would like to talk a little bit about uh, a case in maryland that has the uh potential to be a case that kind of throws open uh, or puts a spotlight on the child protection system and family court issues I'll, I'm gonna, know, I can do that I'm, a little I bit later. Go to our, I, I want to go to our caller right now. Um, mm-hmm. Caller, are you there? Hello, caller, are you there? Okay, we lost the caller, so sorry about that. Go ahead then. Um, Eileen, did you? Yeah, there's a case that was decided in December of 2015, just last year, and it's called Lauren McClanahan versus Washington County Department of Social Services. And in this case, the mother took her daughter uh, at a fairly young age, I think it started when she was two, two and a half, to the doctors because she had various um, symptoms uh, of UTIs and vaginitis and all sorts of other problems and pain upon urination. Plus, she was making disclosures. So she took her daughter to the medical professionals. They themselves then made reports to Child Protection Services To make a long story short, after many investigations by Child Protective Services, each of them was ruled out. The child was too young. They thought she, you know, they couldn't understand what she was saying or they didn't credit what she was saying. And eventually, uh, the mother lost custody. And towards the very end, before she lost custody, if I have my, um, the timeline right, She came back from, the child came back from a visit with dad, uh, had a very bad chest cold. They went to the doctors, and there the child spontaneously disclosed another uh, incident. She was looked at. They found a coarse hair in her private parts. She was sent for a forensic evaluation at a hospital. The hospital called Child Protection Services, and they said, don't do it. Don't do an evaluation or a forensic uh, (gasps) exam. Stop. 
And so they I've sent, heard that as they well. Sent the, yeah, sent mom and child away without an evaluation or forensic exam. <clears throat> and as I said, the mother eventually lost custody to the father because of this. But the here's the thing. the They then filed a report against the mother for neglect. Mother appealed that. That was overturned. Then they filed a report against her for um, child abuse by mental injury, saying the child had regressed. It was because of these examinations that mom took her to. Therefore, she was an abuser. She had mentally abused her child. And the experts who looked at this case said, and the mother had done this. She, there was no evidence of coaching, but she had done this subconsciously or unconsciously. She may have done this subconsciously or unconsciously. So in my good state of Maryland, you could be found guilty of abuse by mental injury for subconsciously influencing a child or unconsciously God. influencing a child. And so this went up through the court system. And at the highest level in uh, December of uh, 2015, they overturned it. And they said, actually, you can't just say that somebody, you know, un- uh, well, actually they said, you know, a person has to have knowingly or recklessly caused harm. You can't just say that there was harm and make that connection and the parent didn't know they were doing anything and suddenly they're an abuser. And they quoted from an amicus brief that we had filed which which really says, you know, that these protective parents are on the front lines of protecting children. They, you know, we can't be, um, we have to recognize this. And I think this is a really outstanding case that begins, and I, I say just begins, to kind of um, shine a light on the problems. Um, uh, you know, what we're seeing not just in the court system, but at the bottom, um, you know, where the feet hit the ground, where the investigations are happening with Child Protective Services. Um, And uh, I just wanted to mention that. And there's a lot of information available. Um, Anyone who writes me, I'm happy to send briefs and and, uh, anything they would like to get a look at the appeal. It's worth reading. Is there any, do either, are either of you aware of any kind of legislative solution that anyone is seeking for this issue? Well, I can wave my hand in the air and say yes. You know, I'm working with a group of other people, including um, folks from the West Coast, East Coast, uh, Domestic Violence, Legal and Empowerment Project, Child Justice, California Protective Parents Association, um, uh, ACES, whose acronym I can't spell outright or tell you what it is right now, uh, on getting um, a joint congressional resolution sponsored and then hopefully one day passed that makes child safety the paramount goal of child custody cases. Um, And we know, it's already been said, you know, child abuse has long-term, short and long-term effects that go into the lifetime of the child. They go out into the family. They go out into, they ripple out into our society, our communities. Um, And there is a cost, you know, for not protecting children. So there is a lot of reason to kind of awaken people by saying, let's look at the safety of these children as the goal um, and not just a shadowy, vague child's best interest, which can be anything you want it to mean. Um, Safety should be really well articulated. So that's something that's underway right now. Yeah. Um, uh, And I want to go to the Saunders report, which I thought was such an, outstanding report, um, and most people are familiar with it, but it was a, a, I I guess it was, I don't know exactly how these things work, I guess it was commissioned by the DOJ or or, uh, somehow, anyway, um, he, he, the professor from Michigan, I guess it was from, he was from Michigan, um, was uh, commissioned to do this study, to look into this situation in family courts, and of course the DOJ doesn't, you know, has no authority over family courts, but they do have some funding options and things like that. His study was so amazing and so, um, I, I mean, I just respect that study so much. And he is supporting, he, his findings support what, what we have been hearing anecdotally. Based on that study, how, do either of you have experience on how that study is being used by the courts? I mean, are the courts as a general rule, looking at this, going, whoa, maybe we are need to, to become reeducated, maybe we need to do something here, or mm-hmm. is that just my Pollyanna coming through? 
You're you're a very dear sweet Pollyanna. <laughs> I mean, because I get to you know I get to sit in courts and read transcripts and I'm in touch with people you know all over the U.S. and the Saunders Saunders study is so wonderful in how it explores the beliefs of evaluators, but I don't see any trickle down into the states and the counties and the courts that are actually. Um, either court ordering evaluations or sometimes courts have their own family services program where they have in-house evaluators doing things. Um, I, I haven't seen any impact yet. And the, uh, the evaluations that I'm looking at use the same old, same old terminology of uh, parental alienation and maybe it's Munchausen's and maybe um, – you know, there's uh, she wants to get an advantage in the custody case and the old memes that you see repeated again and again. So I don't see an impact yet. I I really think, you know, that to me, uh, Heather, thank you for pulling together this conversation. I, I mm. just always, I'm I'm so interested to hear your take and your experience, and I'm always interested in what Eileen has to say about anything. Um, I I just think the family court system is such a complete disaster in large part because no one has an incentive to change. Right. No one who's part of that family court system is interested in change. Even if they wanted to make improvements, it would be time-consuming, it would be difficult, it would be costly, but mostly it would harm their reputations. And I, 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 that's why I think until we have a media that has some guts to it, to the, we are going to stay with the system that hurts and damages children all over this country because this is, this is a national scandal. This is far worse, if you want to think about numbers, than the Catholic priest issue. I mean, the numbers are far more shocking, but the media, as long as the media remains silent, the family courts have no reason to change. You can't sue people, or I don't know, Eileen, I know uh, Hera McLeod sued uh, 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 the, one of the, the mental therapist health professionals. who said, yeah, yeah mm-hmm. this was a case where uh, a, a therapist or a social worker said, oh, it's okay for the little boy to go with his father, and the father killed him. So you might know more of the details of that, Eileen. You know, only that this therapist, I was there when she had her hearing before the the board, um, licensing board in Virginia, and the problem was is that she had done an evaluation about the father's parenting fitness and approved him having unsupervised time with the child, but her training and experience was in school evaluation, school, you know, school-related evaluation. She didn't have the background to do this, so that's why Hera McLeod was successful. Um, but I, I can't say enough, Garland, how right you are about the lack of incentive to change because um, there are quite a few people making a ton of money in my area here. If you do an evaluation, you're going to get between 10000 and 30000 or more dollars for a psych eval or a custody evaluation. Um, if your attorney's representing clients, you're getting over $400 an hour or more. Um, judges, you know, keep their reputation amongst their friends. This is how we do it. You know, there's a business as usual, um, uh, how do you say, ethic? I can't use the word ethic there. That's not the right (laughs) word, but kind of like an agreement. This is how we do things. And, you know, where is the incentive? And even in these these articles from the Post that should have had people hanging their heads, uh, life goes on. Um, Well, that kind of takes full circle. You know, I'm, I'm... you can see I'm speechless about well, that, you know, but what, what you're is saying going kind of to change full that. Circle I think to where that we were to start with, um, what, which the, is, what the media still thinks is that these are rare and unusual cases yeah. because they're looking at the murders. They're looking at the, uh, the the really the cases that you just 
cannot dispute what happened. You know, a child is dead. But in the custody cases that go on for years and where the the um, abuser strategy is always to undermine the credibility of the mother using the typical gender stereotype, she's crazy, she's vindictive, she's manipulative, she's lying, um, and then saying, but children need their, their fathers. Children need, they yeah. must have their fathers. That is almost an unbeatable combination to have those, you know, in front Whatever of Whatever happened to the tender years doctrine? I mean, I, uh. I was talking with a woman not too long ago in one of the small towns 100 miles or so away from Seattle, and she was a, a young woman. She was still in her teens, I think, and, and she had given birth um, to the child. The child's father was not her husband, uh, and nevertheless, he was, um, I, well, I won't say, I, I, he, he wanted custody. And so this newborn child, the child was two weeks old, and the judge ordered the child to spend one week with dad and one week with mom. Oh. Well, yeah. there goes breastfeeding. There goes, right. you know, I mean, bonding. There go. I mean, hello. I mean, don't you have to take a basic psychology class to be a judge? I would think you would. I mean, I, I, yeah. I, I don't understand how anybody could think that's a good idea. <laughs> yeah. And and yet yeah, here's I this mean, young girl yeah. forced forced to hand over her two week old baby for a week. Yeah. It's, you know, and that's not a rare uh, decision, not at all a rare decision. Um, and the other thing that you see uh, quite frequently are high-profile cases. There are at least two that I'm aware of right now where the teenage girls have run away from their father. They don't want to be with him, say he's abusive, but then they're found as runaways and they're kind of extradited back into his uh his care or his custodial care, even if they're not living with him. And we have cases, you know, I I have several cases where the mother has custodial rights, has, but the child is with the father. The father refuses to let the child, you know, see the mother. And what do the courts say? Well, you know, he's 13, she's 13. She, we should listen to the child here. So there's this discrepancy about how courts see the rights of mothers, so-called rights of mothers, and the rights of fathers. And fathers have a much easier time asserting those rights. I think this probably falls into the category where you know uh, a bunch, Heather, with gender issues and and, uh, some of the reporting that you're doing. But I I have often thought about – I remember when, do you all remember when uh, Dylan Farrow, Mia Farrow's daughter, uh, reported the abuse by uh, Woody Allen? And it was really fascinating to me how quickly everybody came to the side of Woody Allen. Oh, gosh, yes. You know, and blamed this this young woman who I thought was very brave to be uh, speaking out. And so you see the... It's it's the courts are a major problem because there's so much ignorance in America. There's conscious or unconscious gender bias where they there's a dismissing of of these stories by the mothers or by the children. You know, one of the things that I think has been that when I speak uh, at different places and I I quote. Um, a lawyer, an activist named uh, Andrew Vax, who coined the phrase, growing your own victim. I've really found that when you talk to the media and when you talk to friends and neighbors and you say something like, you know, in the family courts and around the country, it turns out that uh, men have... Pedophiles, I guess it's not men because there's so many wonderful men, and we know that. But there, yes, there are many who aren't. But when you say, you know, these pedophiles have learned to grow their own victims, yeah, that whips people's heads around. That changes the conversation in a big way. And I think that's the kind of thing that's also good to say to any reporters and media people that you're talking to. So okay. I'm looking, you know, I'm, I'm looking at the clock, and I'm going. I can't believe it. Uh, we haven't even talked about any kind of resources mm-hmm. or strategies we can offer to uh, a protective mother who is in that situation where she has to hand her child over. Um, 
maybe we should have a whole separate show on that. What do you think, ladies? Or <laughs> you, should. you can you really should you should because <laughs> that that is that is the challenge of a lifetime. Okay, you know what? Then let's do yeah. that. I'm not even going to attempt to try and give adequate advice in, in five minutes. Let's just plan a separate show. We're going to talk separately about strategies, uh, resources for protective mothers who are forced to hand over a child, and we will just make that an entire show, and we'll schedule that as soon as I'm able to um, because I, there's just no way we can do that even even halfway justice um, in, in four or five minutes. When you're talking about the courts, I always say that the courts operate under three philosophies, none of which is accurate. One is that a child has to have a relationship with his father no matter what, that a child will be harmed without a relationship with his father, to which I say having a relationship with a really bad person is not a good thing no matter how you're related to him. The other thing is is that just because a father abuses the mother doesn't mean he's going to abuse the children, which, hello, I mean, do we really need to, you know, counteract that argument? And then the third one is she lies. And yet mm-hmm. study after study yeah. after study proves that, well, yeah, there's this tiny, tiny, tiny little bit of, of women who lie. And you know what? It's the same tiny, tiny little bit of men, if not more, who lie in court. And yet those three tenets seem to have an overwhelming influence on court decisions. Am I right on that? Absolutely I mean, right. I, I'm yeah. sure Eileen can speak to that, but I know you're right. And I also know, uh, I don't have them right at my fingertips, but every single point you just made has a statistic to go with it. In other yep. words, yeah. there's research on this. <laughs> it's not something you're making up either that you right. just right. think. It's very real. It's, and yes. there's 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 a foundation for this, and yet, the courts completely ignore that, which is the truth, yeah. not the other yeah. stuff you were just saying. Well, and that goes to the Saunders report. I mean, maybe, it, it, and one of the things I liked about the Saunders report is that he talked about the 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 um, uh, formulation of the court, how the courts work, and that they are, in fact, designed to look at incidents, not patterns. And when you're talking about domestic violence or abuse, you need to look at patterns. I mean, he, he very clearly indicated that there are some real reasons, not just because there's bad people or cranky people or people who don't want to listen to the research, that there are some real reasons that courts are doing this. And I think we need to be looking at those reasons and what we can do to change them. Uh, otherwise, we are, not, we are going to continue to see that lack of incentive to change. Um, that's yeah. my two <laughs> Yeah, and and here's and here's another here's another really difficult part of the the picture, is that um, some of the most aggressive attorneys representing abusive men, are, and some of the worst judges, <laughs> and some of the worst attorneys for children, and some of the worst therapists, and some of the worst um, evaluators for child custody and psychology are women. Yes. Right. And yes. so so you cannot break this down into a it's all one gender here and one gender there. It just doesn't work like that. And of course there are protective fathers too. I've worked with them. I know that that exists. So so this is a really interesting complex interweaving connected overlapping kind of a thing um that escapes easy, you know, a sound bite. Uh, except Catch-22 yeah. always does it for me, I have to say. <laughs> well, yeah, it sums yeah. it up, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah it does. So, um, and and I also wanted to throw in a little caveat that, you know, we talk about the money incentive. Well, you know what? I don't he- have a huge issue with a normal money incentive. I want to make money. I want, You know what I'm saying? I want to be able to pay my mortgage. I don't have... Uh, a particular issue with people earning a living. I, I'm okay with that. Um, you get greedy, then I start getting cranky. But, uh, you know, just <laughs> the fact that, that uh, you know, court personnel make money, I'm okay with that. We all want to make money, you know. Um, but there has to be uh, something that's equally important to just making money when you're doing these, these decisions. That said, I end our show with a quote. Ladies, thank you so much for joining me. I hope that both of you will come back and we can talk more about this issue because God knows we need to talk about it. 
Um, thank you for, for making this possible. It was really a, a pleasure to speak to you both. Well, yes, thank, thank you. Thank you and, so and much, Heather. Same with both of you. Um, the quote that I'm going to use today is because I, I, I want to end a little bit on a light note. It's from The Simpsons. The quote is from Lionel Hertz. Lionel Hertz, court-appointed attorney. I'll be te- defending you on the charge of, whoa, murder one, Wow. Even if I lose, I'll be famous. Thank you for joining us. (laughs) Next week, we're talking with Janet Chung about hospital murders and how they are impacting women's access access to health care. Thank you for joining us on Three Women, Three Ways.